You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. tonight's M Talks Full Circle Material Experiments. Thank you to M Pavilion for hosting us this evening. Thank you to our panellists who will be introduced shortly. This event is being recorded and will be made publicly available by M Pavilion. Welcome to our audience and thank you for showing your support in attending tonight. We acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of their land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders past, present and to the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anyone is listening to a recording of this event. Now I'd like to briefly introduce myself. My name is Isabella Pabard and I'm a registered architect with a keen interest in community, education and institutional projects that make a con positive contribution to society. Specifically, I work across many large scale government education projects. I have seven years experience in the architecture industry during this time, I have been involved in many advocacy groups and events. I'll briefly mention a few relevant experiences in relation to tonight's topic. In 2018, I graduated from Monash University with a Master of Architecture, where I undertook studies in robotic fabrication, parametric design, material history and theory, and biomaterial science. From 2021 to 2022, I taught architectural performance at Monash University, which covers environmentally sustainable design, structural engineering, services engineering, and construction technologies. In 2022, I joined the National Steering Committee at Architects Declare, a sustainability action group, and started the Materials Working Group. This group aims to unite industry to work towards solutions for more sustainable materials market transformation. I regard environmentally sustainable and technical, technologically focused outcomes as intrinsic to the development of quality architecture with a positive impact. In 2022, I founded SustiSpec, the host of this event, as a platform to share my knowledge of material life cycle and sustainable methods of specifying to assist other professionals. I pitched and organized tonight's event as part of an ongoing voluntary commitment as SustiSpec. Now for a bit about the focus topic for tonight's discussion. The combined weight of all buildings on Earth is heavier than the weight of all trees. Surpassing 1.1 trillion metric tons human-made mass outweighs biomass. Human-made mass is predicted to triple by 2040. Concrete accounts for approximately 50% of human-made mass. Aggregates make up around 30%. Bricks, asphalt and other materials account for the rest, making up almost 20% of human-made mass. So what is full circle materials experiments? Full circle is a term defining the circularity of a material. If the material can be reused at the end of its life and remade into new material, the circle is completed. During this event, 
we will primarily be discussing construction materials, however similar concepts do apply to other industries as well. We know the construction industry contributes more carbon emissions than fashion. Annually, the construction industry is responsible for almost 47% of global carbon emissions. Embodied carbon of material processing, manufacturing and construction accounts for 20% of that figure. Typically, virgin materials are sourced from nature, processed, manufactured, then transported and used for construction. During their life in the building, they will need to be maintained and repaired. After the building life, they will be demolished and end up as waste. Instead of producing this waste, materials can be reused into new building products. This is still an intensive process, but less damaging than sourcing virgin materials over and over again. For example, sawdust waste from a timber milling process can be reused as fuel in a brick kiln. When combined with reducing or eliminating waste from manufacturing and construction, such as prefabrication, these results can be highly beneficial. We will hear more about this and related uh, investigations from Curvecrete tonight. This brings me to the silent hero of the material market, biomaterials. Often underestimated and predominantly known in academia, so in the industry or commercial architecture, Simula has proven that academic concepts can be applied to real-world solutions at scale. Biomaterials circumvent the traditional constraints of the supply chain and propose new solutions that have the potential to eliminate harmful practices. Our panelists tonight are championing new material explorations and research from and for the design industry. We'll hear about cutting edge developments in biomaterial experiments and robotic fabrication. These products feature advanced material science to create new technologies and more sustainable material use. Working at the forefront of research and mass production, our panelists will reveal the synergies and differences between their approaches and processes and show the potential of what is possible. We'll hear from each speaker for around 15 minutes, then move into the panel discussion before fielding your audience questions at the end. So please do think of some questions to ask during the discussion. Unfortunately, Julia Kay, um, co-founder and CEO of Great Rap, couldn't make it today due to a work emergency. Um, but it's my pleasure to introduce Andre Benice from Simula first. Andre Benice is a registered architect in the state of Victoria and a director of Simula, an architecture practice based in Melbourne, Nam. The practice is defined by considered analysis and a research-based approach that prioritizes critical experimentation. Andre's professional experience consists of over 15 years in architectural practice in Melbourne and abroad. Andre also maintains strong links to academia, holding teaching positions in the architect de departments at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne and the School of Architecture at RMIT University. Uh, cool. Thanks, Isabella. Thanks for the invitation and the introduction. Uh, so, yes, I'm Andre Benice from Simula. Uh, we're an architecture practice. We're not material scientists. Um, most of the work we do is traditional architectural work. Um, but as Isabella mentioned, we're engaged in academia and we value the kind of opportunity to uh, engage in research projects. So I'll be talking about one particular project from 2021, 
uh, and its kind of material properties, which is specifically looking at uh, fungi. Uh, so if there's any fungi enthusiasts here, um, you might um, enjoy this one. Uh, so I think there's certainly a lot of people that are doing a lot of amazing work with uh, fungi. And I'll kind of loosely describe a bit about what fungi is and this thing called mycelium for those that aren't familiar. Uh, and then talk a little bit about what the kind of opportunities are in the built environment and material thinking. So I have some samples. I think probably best to kind of hand them around so you can all kind of get a tactile experience with it. So I promise they're all safe, inert. Uh, the fungi is being killed off and it's just in its sort of hardened state. But it'll kind of give you an understanding of um, some of the things I'm talking about. So I might uh, grab a few. And so I have run the practice with uh, Anna, who's uh, an architect as well, now handing out the, I'll, I'll keep the rest of them, now handing out the little samples. Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, the project that we're kind of representing or had done these tests for was for the Tallinn Architecture Biennale uh, in 2021. So it was an international competition for the installation uh, of a structure at the front of the Museum of Estonian Architecture. So we were fortunate enough to win the competition with our proposal Berla site. And the competition organisers uh, were kind of interested in the idea of slowness, so we can think about the kind of slow food movement. Uh, in addition to the overall theme, which was edible uh, architecture of metabolism. Uh, specifically, the installation itself had to deal with timber in some way. And so that was a kind of focus of, of the proposal. Uh, and so for us, we ended up looking specifically at uh, sawdust. Uh, so from the machinic processes of timber making, sawdust waste as a sort of primary medium. And it's kind of combination with uh, fungi. So I think before I talk more specifically about some of those material qualities and uh, the project itself, I will give a bit of an introduction into fungi and some of its qualities and traits and how it can be applied in this sort of way. Uh, so I think, like, firstly, you know, fungi is everywhere. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's in our bodies, it's on the ground, it's in the ceiling of your bathroom, and it can kind of vary greatly in its size. Um, and so taxonomically, uh, fungi has gained its independence and became a kingdom in the 1960s. So prior to that, it was kind of considered part of the plant kingdom. But fungi is very kind of particular and specific. So it differs from plants because unlike plants, it doesn't photosynthesize and generate energy from that. It needs to seek it out, absorb it, and uh, find it. But it, unlike um, animals, it's a sessile um, organism, So it doesn't move and it needs to kind of grow and find um, things through that way. So I think when we kind of typically talk about fungi, most people kind of think about uh, mushrooms, obviously. But mushrooms sort of represent the sort of fruiting body. But primarily, uh, fungi lives most of its life as a sort of branching, fusing network um, of tubular cells called mycelium. So mycelium represents that sort of root structure. Um, it's not actually a root, but it's this tubular structure. And I think we can, it's analogous to the tr a tree. So if we see the kind of tree and its branches and its trunks and its root, roots, that's how we can kind of understand this mycelium. And so then the apples on the tree uh, would be the mushrooms. But given uh, this mycelium spends pretty much all of its life hidden from view, concealed underground. 
So it's notoriously hard to study and, and difficult to kind of um, fully describe. So I think, uh, you know, all we really see is the apple kind of emerging from the ground, and in this case, the kind of mushroom. So I think the fungal kingdom is incredibly diverse. Um, there's between 2.2 and 3.8 million species, and only 20,000 to 30,000 of which actually produce mushrooms. So, and mycelium itself can vary enormously in size. It can be uh, basically occupy a dust particle in your house and expand over great huge kilometres of networks. And so I think the, the biggest one is uh, 10 kilometres in size and is somewhere between 2,000 and 8,000 years old. This is all obviously um, a, you know, a, occurring underground hidden from view. Um, and there's like really in interesting relationships between uh, fungi and other organisms. So lichen you may have heard about. That's the kind of um, symbiosis of a fungi and an algae, which you'll often find on rocks, in, on roof tiles. And they're more sort of masters at breaking down notoriously hard materials. There's mycorrhizal fungi, which is the kind of symbiosis between um, mycelium and plants, which is sort of fundamental. They have a kind of long history together. Uh, fungi was fundamental from uh, plants making the shift from water to land and actually provided the root structure before plants had evolved to have one themselves. So there's also a lot of research and work that's being uh, looking into uh, mycelium networks and the way that they can transfer nutrients uh, and also information between plants and trees. So, you know, underneath the park here, there would be a whole vast network of mycelium connecting trees and plants together and nutrients moving from one place to another. So it's a pretty miraculous system. Uh, and this sort of work kind of represents a very specific material investigation, but the uh, implications are quite broad. So I think uh, for our proposal uh, at, in Tallinn, um, one of the kind of things that define fungi is they're the kind of great decomposers. They're the great decomposers of the world. So essentially every comp compost heap uh, is full of fungi. Uh, and you know when you see leaves and bark and branches hit the ground and slowly decompose, that's a, f a fungi beginning uh, releasing enzymes to break down that or or organic matter into soil. So that kind of defines a, a, a large kind of contribution of what fungi does, uh, in addition to uh, lichen that I mentioned earlier. And so it, it also, through this process of decomp uh, decomposition, can be used to break down uh, toxic waste. There's uh, work and research being looked into that. Uh, other chemicals and plastics as well. So uh, people are looking into how um, mycelium can be used in that context. So um, in terms of the, our proposal site, which was in Tallinn, so it was essentially the brief was not dissimilar to the M Pavilion. It was for a kind of uh, a, a structure similar to this, although not nearly as big. Uh, and I think we were quite conscious of the pavilion fatigue that's kind of occurred, this sort of perpetual creation of uh, short-lived pavilions that are made of primarily carbon-intensive materials. Uh, so the steel structure, you know, glass, etc. And we were quite interested in this idea of a pavilion that would like slowly decompose and slowly decay and return to the soil over its life. So that it was a kind of life cycle idea. And so 
critical to the what we're proposing with this idea of um, yeah decomposition slowly breaking down. Uh, if anyone's familiar with Urs Fischer, the artist Urs Fischer, there's uh, his bread house, which was a house he made of literal bread, uh, and it over time went stale, started to crumble and then fell apart in the gallery. And I think that was certainly a big inspiration for the project. So the, as I mentioned earlier, the brief for the project was uh, timber. And so Estonia has a huge timber industry and uh, we became interested in sawdust as the kind of primary medium, because that's a kind of waste product from that process. And so what we were able to do was use the sawdust, uh, the proposition was to use the sawdust in a sort of 3D printed binder jetting process. So it's infused with a biopolymer and then inoculated with a mycelium mushroom. So the uh, little samples that are being handed around now kind of represent that mycelial glue that's joining uh, that filament together. So some of them have uh, wood chips in them, some of them are sawdust and bits of cardboard, but essentially the kind of binding structure of all of them is the mycelium. And so for the proposal itself, we started with formally a sort of traditional timber structure. And what we then did was use a digital algorithm that sort of generatively changed the form. It's quite hard to describe some of this stuff without images, but you can kind of um, work it out in your head. And so essentially this algorithm uh, transformed this very typical timber structure into one that was kind of created ideal conditions for mycelial uptake. So mycelium requires, you know, particular uh, environments and conditions. So it's, um, and, and essentially the form was replicating what was required. So the final sort of form took on a grotto, uh, grotto or subterranean root-like form. Um, so the, some of these samples are specifically for that. Some of them were uh, just material samples. So this was, I, I guess, kind of what I was talking about with that form. So you can kind of see the interior of, of, of it, uh, that kind of white, uh, soft, rubbery surface is the mycelium. And essentially, this is like a little tiny segment of the proposal. And so what that internal cavity does is create the kind of ideal conditions for mycelium. So it's high humidity, protected from direct sunlight, um, and still allows air to pass through. And so that was the kind of exploration formally of how we could kind of embed some of those properties. So the outside is also mycelium, but it's been sort of more affected by um, uh, light elements. So we we're kind of stress testing the mycelium and what kind of heat, light, etc., um, would begin to affect it. These ones as well were, um, you can kind of see, I'll probably hand these around too, uh, they were slightly different process that we tried, but equally the same um, sort of method. So they were made up of sawdust and you can kind of see the interior of it. The mycelium seems to kind of grow more uh, vigorously than on the outside. Um, okay, so I think, you know, overall there's a kind of really interesting idea about it being a biogradable material, kind of end of life. And so that's what kind of really defined our proposal for the pavilion, that it could kind of accept the passage of time and then slowly kind of return to the earth. So then I think just, I'll just quickly um, cover a few of the kind of material applications for mycelium. So uh, for those that are familiar, it's, it's being proposed to kind of replace plastics, leather, and even polystyrene. So there's a number of uh, countries, uh, sorry, companies that are doing work in this sort of area and we're by no means the experts. Uh, 
And so I think what's kind of critical about it is that time it takes to break down. So, you know, typically your polystyrenes or your plastics or your petrochemical-based materials are going to take hundreds or thousands of years to break down, uh, if at all. Um, whereas mycelium can be grown from agricultural waste. Uh, so we can use waste products, uh, organic waste products, and then convert them into usable materials. So I think in terms of the applications within the construction industry, uh, it can replicate a kind of form of concrete. Uh, it's certainly not as, uh, it doesn't have the compressive strength of concrete, but what it does have is it's extremely light, which you'll kind of find with those samples. Uh, it's a terrific insulator, uh, both acoustically and thermally, so it can be used in between wall panels, uh, which is a, a way that's being looked at. It's a good fire retardant, and if it does catch fire itself, it doesn't let off any kind of bad chemical or toxins. So it's a completely kind of natural uh, material. And it also, um, you know, given the right conditions, can repair itself. So you can feed it and water it, and it can um, repair itself as well. So I think at the moment, there's ways to kind of make it uh, into bricks, panels, as I mentioned. Also the packaging, leather, foam and furniture, which I think it's being used. And there's like plenty of fungi enthusiasts that have been exploring all of those things. A couple of companies that are kind of doing this is uh, Ecovative in New York are probably, they've already um, got 20 patents on different, which I think is a little strange given, you know, the mycelium's doing all the work. I'm not sure why they're patenting everything. But they've been working with IKEA to replace all their polystyrene packaging with mycelium. Uh, they're also working with Bolt Threads, who's been working with Stella McCartney and creating leather from mycelium. And there's a range called Milo. It hasn't been released retail yet, but uh, I think they're planning to do it in the next five or so years. Uh, the godfather of fungi, Paul Stamets, for anyone that knows, he's, work, he's doing many things with fungi, including saving uh, bees. Uh, but he's also working with NASA to look at ways to grow structures on the moon and Mars. And so I think what's really interesting is of those uh, you know, 20 to 30 million different species of uh, fungi, their mycelium all has different qualities. So depending on the material outcome, you would use a different species. So some uh, species are quite flexible and soft, whereas others are kind of uh, faster growing and, and, and dry harder and have more sort of structural capability. So uh, these couple of examples here is a reishi mushroom, which is like a really quick goer. It, it doesn't mind extreme, like, uh, more higher temperatures, and it's sort of more adaptable. Um, and so I think, you know, what the kind of exciting thing is that only 6% of fungi have sort of been described. So there's a whole, you know, 94% that we don't really know anything about yet, uh, given that it's underground and hard to find. So then maybe just quickly some of the kind of challenges and, and processes and limitations. So I think what's very particular about the fungi is the kind of process at which you kind of generate it. So you're inoculating a substrate, but what you're essentially doing, you're creating ideal conditions for mycelium to grow, but it's also its competitors' ideal uh, conditions. So other bacteria, uh, other molds and fungi are kind of competing for the same space. So sterilization becomes incredibly important and having really kind of clean working environment. So it can be literally just from your own breath, from your hand, that you can transfer a competitor which will then kind of uh, affect its growth. So that's a kind of really key consideration. Um, this one in the, the little glad wrap bag, uh, it's essentially still inoculating, so it's still growing. It's been going for about six days now. 
And so it would probably take another uh, five or six days and then it would kind of fully formed and then can be uh, dried and hardened out like these other ones. So essentially these have been put in an oven, well, or put outside in the sun, and essentially you kind of dry it out. And that's when the mycelium converts from being a kind of soft, rubbery-like material to a kind of hardened um, structural state. And that's what that kind of transfer looks like. Um, so I think, and these, as I mentioned, these materials are kind of, kind of stress testing that process. So uh, how far could we push the temperature range? You know, how, how much did we, how much humidity did we quite need? So you can see like this mushroom itself does have a lot of color variation, but there are others that are quite white, fluffy, like this one's a white oyster, which is a bit of a wider finish. So they also do have a kind of different uh, aesthetic quality as well, we'll say. Um, and, uh, and the conditions that you're kind of creating differ from whether you're prioritizing the fruiting body, so the mushrooms, whether you're trying to farm the mushrooms, or you're trying to prioritize the mycelium, because they're kind of two different conditions. Generally speaking, you don't need light. Um, you can rely on primarily CO2, uh, and you can put the temperatures quite high if you're trying to grow the mycelium primarily, whereas it's a bit more sensitive when you're prioritizing the, the mushroom. And so then the temperature range is a bit smaller, uh, needs airflow and light as well. So it's kind of interesting to what, like, what you can achieve depending on those sort of conditions. Um, so I think that pretty much covers it. Uh, hopefully, uh, yeah, I'll look forward to some questions on the, on the subject. Awesome, thanks so much. I think that was like a really great in-depth overview generally of the material. I think it's also important to say how impressive I think from a you know, relatively small architecture practice in Melbourne to, to produce global scale, you know, high quality um, design outputs with pushing material boundaries. I think that's really exciting. So um, congrats, guys. Um, okay, and now my pleasure to introduce Daniel. So Daniel Prohaski, CEO of Curvecrete and an architectural engineering lecturer at Swinburne University. is a roboticist and architectural engineer on a mission towards a lower carbon, zero waste, exciting future for construction. Daniel championed Curvecrete's solution to low carbon, zero waste, beautiful curved concrete, which was awarded Endeavour Award Sustainable Solution of the Year 2022 and a gold good design tick in 2022. Daniel co-invented Curvecrete's fit-for-purpose robotic systems of construction, which have now been demonstrated in the real world. The first project, a spiral stair to access the rooftop of one of Melbourne's medium-rise apartment buildings, saved over 10 tonnes in carbon emissions relative to a concrete box stairway, as now enjoyed by the building's residents. I'll hand it over to you. Thank you very much. Um, Really a great pleasure to be here, and um, thank you uh, for the, the previous presentation. Uh, the mycelium, I think, the strength to weight ratio is probably better than concrete, so you could probably span further. It'd be pretty interesting to, to test that logic. Um, and uh, yeah, grow some structures. Um, for uh, my talk and presentation um, of, of physical objects in front of me, I'm going to be talking about concrete, but not standard concrete. Uh, I'm going to be talking about using waste materials as active ingredients within concrete um, to make them lower carbon, but also 
utilize a waste byproduct that we have an abundance of. Um, so uh, to kick off, um, to you know, uh, set the context, uh, concrete is uh, one of our biggest emitters in the world. Uh, it contributes to about 8% of all global CO2 emissions. Um, half of that percentage is due to one chemical reaction, um, which is due to uh, limestone being transformed into a clinker. Um, the chemistry alone emits CO2 itself, so 4% of all global CO2 emissions are literally just from that chemical reaction. And the other 4% is due to uh, the process of heating the, uh, the substance to make that reaction happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, it's just the chemistry um, that, that is the issue. Um, there's obviously transport, construction, etc., that contribute to more of that CO2 emissions, and we're tackling those issues as well. Um, so, Curvecrete is about a, a dual solution to uh, reducing construction waste or waste in general and reducing uh, carbon emissions through um, you know, the clever use of chemistry and material uh, and also in how we fabricate things. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, to uh, explain the material uh, first and then I'll, I'll go into robotics and, and our process uh, second. So, um, the material that we use is called a geopolymer um, it's made up of uh, fly ash, which is found um, in large piles uh, around Australia that contribute to about 400 million tonnes of waste. Um, it, it accounts for about 18% of Australia's waste stream. Um, and we, so we produce about 12 million tonnes of this every year. We use effectively about uh, 20 to 40% of that, um, but we could use the 80 to 60% um, for construction. Uh, the, the waste byproduct is, is produced through coal power um, processes, which we're trying to phase out. Um, and I always get the question of what happens when they phase it out. It's like, please just do it um, because um, we've got enough. <laughs> we've got 400 million tons of this material and uh, globally it's available in every continent. Um, uh, that uh, yeah, produce coal power. So they've got billions of tons of this material that we can use as an active ingredient to replace um, what is the polluting element in, in concrete. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, so we use flash um, as uh, a main ingredient as well as uh, blast furnace slag, which is a byproduct from uh, steel production. Um, so, uh, yeah, with those two ingredients, um, we can use some uh, chemical logic, some, some chemistry uh, to use an alkali activator. Um, so, um, you know, think of table salt, uh, you know, the sodium um, portion of that, and uh, mix it uh, with some silicate, um, which is sand, basically, but in liquid form. Um, so uh, this is a um, substance called sodium metasilicate, uh, which is what we call liquid glass. Um, and 
you can combine that with the flash and slag to create a different chemistry of uh, uh, you know of the cementitious um, replacement. So it's uh, the, the binding or the glue uh, that holds the, the concrete together, um, and um, all of those uh, materials are are available um, within Australia to um, to use on mass, um, but the chemistry is not well known uh, to a lot of precasters, pre prefabricators for, for concrete materials or cast in situ um, uh, concreters. Um, it, it's just uh, not a well known practice. Um, so uh, what we're trying to do is, is educate uh, the, the market, um, educate um, you know, uh, you know, in a number of different ways through demonstrating that you can use uh, this material um, through some really uh, beautiful artifacts. Um, so, uh, you know, recently we finished uh, our first commercial project, which is pretty cool uh, as a company. We're a very young company, so that was a massive milestone. Um, and uh, premised uh, in the introduction about it, um, the, the, the project is a spiral staircase um, that allows access to the rooftop of a 14-storey building in Melbourne. Um, so on Flinders Street, um, just in between King and Spencer. Um, feel free to contact me after this if you'd like to come up and have a look, because um, I'm, a, I'm a resident in that building as well. So, um, you know, this is the, the sort of rich uncle equivalent of, um, of creating the first project for the architecture practice. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it's just a fantastic opportunity for us to, to get started. Um, the way it happened was pretty funny. Um, the the uh, chairman of the body corp of that building gave me a call one day and said, um, oh, hey, uh, we're replacing the security fob tags in the building. Um, you know, I just need to distribute them. You know, uh, how many do you need? Um, and we had a bit of a chat and um, said I was doing some, some work with some students on the building. Um, through Swinburne University, I was teaching them about some sustainable design aspects uh, through modifying the facade of this building. Um, and uh, he was like, oh, that's quite interesting. We're actually thinking about doing the rooftop. Um, would you be interested in helping us with that? I was like, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, starting this company and we, we've, you know, we, can, we can build it as well as design it. Um, so, um, yeah, five days later, we had the annual general meeting and it got approved. Um, so, um, within five days, we had our first project. And uh, since then, two years later, um, yeah, we've, um, hope that doesn't cause too many squeals um, in the wind. Um, yeah, two years later, uh, we've, we've, you know, gone through this process of establishing um, a construction methodology. Um, we've uh, built a factory, a 500 square meter facility. Um, this was all during the pandemic. Um, we, we built five robotic uh, molds that create our curved concrete panels. Um, here you can see some examples, which I'll, I'll pass out now so you can understand um, what, they, what they mean. Okay. Yep. 
Um, so the, um, the robotic method that we developed um, uses this uh, ruled surface logic um, to the panel. So if you cast your eye along one of the edges, you actually see a straight line. And then if you cast your eye along the diagonal, you'll see a parabola. And um, uh, it's a hyperbolic paraboloid is the fancy name for it. Um, we just call them ruled surfaces. Um, and the way we produce them is uh, using a uh, adaptive robotic mold. Uh, so it's basically a series of sticks like this um, that are attached to a frame uh, that twists. Um, so if I had another stick, oh, here we go. Um, you, know, you can twist uh, like this and it creates a surface like so. Right? Uh, the, the key to be able to make uh, this robotic system was in the connections um, between the different rigid elements. Um, and I brought a couple of examples here. Um, so at each vertex, um, defining this quadrilateral frame, uh, there's a pivoting joint. Um, and the way that we could simplify making this robotic system was to rationalize the mathematics into a single point. Um, where three axes join into one location. Um, so you don't have to do any other math. It's just a quadrilateral shape uh, that are defined by four points. Um, and then you move these points around. Um, it becomes a very simple mathematical system. Um, so uh, part of our processes at Curvecrete are not just in designing construction systems, uh, but also designing the robotics to uh, build those construction systems. So we're always flipping back and forth between our thinking, um, understanding how the robotics works um, in three dimensions and the fourth in time, uh, and uh, understanding the geometry in three dimensions and structure, and hopefully not the fourth, um, uh, unless it's a kinetic installation or something. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so we go through this um, prototyping phase where we have a printer farm. So we have uh, 10 3D printers that we use to 3D print out uh, various components, test them uh, at one-to-one -one scale quite quickly. Um, and then we go to a more refined uh, process. Um, this one, for an example, is just a high-precision 3D print. Um, and uh, when we started, this uh, component made up of about 20 different components. So it had thrust bearings, bolts, L brackets, um, all to get that pivoting action at one point. Um, now it is one component uh, that is printed and then uh, three separable portions that are uh, all just printed at once and then uh, able to rotate freely. Um, so I'll pass that around as well. Um, so, uh, learning from how we build uh, robotic systems, we're then able to translate that knowledge into how we construct um, on the building site as well. Um, thinking about, you know, how we approach it in terms of zero, zero tolerances. Um, obviously, there needs to be tolerances allowed, but our thinking is that it needs to be absolutely precise. 
um, and uh, we, we take that thinking from, from day zero all the way through. So, um, yeah, uh, so I've just brought one example here and I've got another example in a factory um, which is a bit bigger that I couldn't bring today. Um, but uh, this is just one example of showing how you could have interlocking uh, panels uh, that are keystoned, uh, or you know, they've got shear keys uh, that lock them in together, and uh, and then post-tensioned and compressed into one another um, to to form a shape. Um, so you can create these compositions of of different ruled surfaces um, to to compose uh, different shapes. Um, so uh, we imagine that. Uh, we're able to use the system to uh, completely modularize how we construct uh, facades or even um, other structures like homes that could uh, be formed of the same element um, in the walls and in the roof and in the subdividing internal uh, walls, uh, you know, uh, producing uh, a variety of shapes. Um, because every one of those panels is different, but it uses the exact same process on our robotic adaptable mold. So uh, that process is a completely reusable process. We can cast thousands of times on the same robot just over and over and over again without any waste. Um, typically, uh, the, the, the waste associated with casting a panel um, would be approximately 10 to 15% of the mass of the, the panel that you're casting. Um, and we, we don't produce any of that. So, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, material cost and, uh, and, and time associated with that that, that we've saved. Um, but, yeah, more importantly, we're not, we're not wasting that material. Um, uh, yeah, and, and not con contributing to that, that Australian uh, construction waste figure. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I want to invite everyone um, that, that's here today um, down to the factory. I know we're not going to travel there now, but um, if you'd like to contact me afterwards uh, to do a factory tour or something, um, yeah, please come down. We're, we're at um, West Footscray. Um, I'd like to show you some uh, full-scale examples of what we're building. Um, in the very near future, um, we'll actually have an example on display at um, University of Melbourne um, in the Melbourne School of Design. Uh, there will be a meeting pod that we're installing there that is using our latest um, construction system. Um, and uh, this is just a tiny little 3D print of kind of what it looks like. Um, uh, but they're diamond-oriented panels and uh, e each one of these panels has a uh, timber dowel at the edge um, that locks it all together. Um, so you can imagine it uh, for the architects and the crowd and the engineers um, uh, as a cable net, um, but it's a rigid cable net. So um, you're using that cable net to clamp the panels in and creating a rigid shell and forcing those panels um, into compression, which is what they want to do. Um, yeah. Uh, so uh, we've just 
recently in the last couple of days uh, tested the entire system together and it actually works. It, uh, we, we couldn't simulate it because they're, they're basically a whole bunch of hinges uh, that want to move in the simulation. But um, when you build it physically, it, it's really rigid. So um, yeah, really keen to show everyone that. Uh, like I said, it'll be on display in a few weeks, um, Melbourne School of Design. So uh, excited to, to share it. Um, yeah. Excellent. Thank Thanks. you very much. Thanks, Daniel. I think it's like a super exciting startup, especially from Melbourne. Um, so congrats on the awards and the progress so far. It's been pretty rapid, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think what's exciting about Curvecrete as a company is that it's got the material science of the, the actual material, but also the fabrication as well. It's kind of all in one. Um, and also pushing the boundaries, like not just stopping at, uh, I suppose, supply or, or fabrication, but also fusing both of them together. Um, so I think we're just going to do a bit of a panel discussion now. So if everyone wants to get their questions ready, it's probably going to be 10 or so minutes and then we'll open it up to the floor. Um, so I'll start back with Andre for now. Um, so you spoke a bit about using sawdust with mycelium specifically, um, that it was influenced by um, the tarlin timber industry and what was available, I suppose, or what was encouraged by that competition as well. I'm interested to hear if you experimented with any other um, materials so far in terms of inoculating the mycelium and also, I suppose, any different composites. Yeah, so I think um, mycelium is pretty robust, so it'll basically eat through any kind of organic matter. So that's why any agricultural waste is sort of perfect for it. Uh, you know, as well as the sort of sawdust. I think what um, I didn't mention was we kind of unknowingly tapped into a kind of cultural um, connection with Estonia, which was uh, we later found out after we were having a conversation with a magazine in Estonia, they were like, oh, so you've obviously been to Estonia a lot um, and know a lot about um, the culture of Estonia. And we're like, uh, well, actually, we haven't been there yet, but we're looking forward to coming. Uh, and so... Essentially, the large mounds of sawdust is a very kind of common sight in Estonia because it's like a large timber industry. When you go out to the countryside, it's a very kind of common thing on the horizon, which we didn't quite know. Uh, and then the other thing was that uh, mushroom picking is a national sport, apparently, in Estonia. So we also didn't know that. But I think that's probably why they were quite fond of the proposal. Um, so I think, you know, so far, you know, as I mentioned, we're not really... Well, we're definitely not material scientists, so we're you know mainly curious architects doing silly things like this. So I think we haven't done extensive testing with different things, but even just in the sort of ones that we have done, and we did send some over to Estonia, there were, it was a, a fair variation of uh, substrates, and it's I think um, you know quite interesting how different species of, of fungi can. Uh, do very different things and that's all to kind of do with the kind of make chemical makeup and the way that they use particular enzymes to either consume or break down um, organic matter. Yeah, great, thanks. I think that's really interesting conclusion that you came to, not super surprising as well, but I think 
obviously worked in with the brief really well. And I think that's another interesting point probably for everyone who's a designer in the room is how can you implement these material studies into your actual designs? So maybe we'll talk a bit about that later. Um, so Daniel, similar kind of question about the actual material composition. Obviously, like I specify, I suppose, reduced cement, concrete and um, fly ash percentages in my specifications for concrete um, using commercial products, I suppose, from suppliers. Um, could you talk a bit more about the actual makeup of the curvecrete um, concrete specifically? Um, I was interested when you were explaining the alkali activator as a waste product. Um, and the stabiliser with fly ash to produce curved forms. Um, and I suppose if you could explain a bit more about the structural integrity of swapping out cement, probably for the audience benefit as well, and just about the percentages and ratios that you were able to achieve with Curve Creek. Yeah, um, so we got rid of all of the Portland cement um, and replaced everything. So uh, we use uh, fly ash and slag in equal proportion. Um, thereabouts, uh, depending on the mix, um, it's a 50-50 split. Um, and then uh, we vary the percentage of the alkali activator, uh, depending on what we require, and uh, tweak some of the uh, constituents within that alkali activator as well to get different results. So you can achieve um, anywhere up to about 80 MPA concrete um, replacing the Portland cement completely. Um, and uh, you can also achieve um, at slightly lower strengths, uh, maybe 40 or 50 MPA, you can achieve high early strengths to demold your panels uh, in about two hours um, with no heat curing. Um, so, uh, and there's other mixed designs that are um, even uh, quicker uh, that we can't mix quick enough. Um, uh, to be able to use. So um, you can even tune the geopolymer uh, to set within 30 seconds um, if you really wanted it to. Um, uh, and uh, you know, all of that uh, you know, know-how in material science has come from uh, really 3D printing uh, in concrete because they want those high early strengths um, to be able to bridge um, that, that 3D printed structure um, yeah, uh, you want that set-on-demand capability, um, uh, and yeah, that that's where we've learnt um, how to use um, our materials through Swinburne's Digital Construction Lab um, and uh, collaborations that that we we have with them uh, to to develop those materials. So um, yeah, we yeah able to um, yeah replace 100%. Now when when you uh, go to specify those sort of materials uh, within your, your standards. Um, you know, if you just go by what is said in AS3600 or, or the others that are um, uh, dictating what sort of percentage replacements you can have, um, you uh, are limited if you just stick to those uh, standard um, percentage requirements. However, you can go to a performance-based solution um, prove that it works uh, through rigorous testing, physical testing, um, 
uh, not just structural, but also the durability for um, uh, sulfide and chloride attack for um, uh, you know, a saline and marine environment um, conditions. How uh, do accelerated age, accelerated aging tests, um, uh, combustibility tests, all of those things to meet performance requirements. Um, and uh, th there's not that many willing concreters that want to go through that. <laughs> they just want the raw material, the ready mix, um, and they just want to reduce the cost in the material uh, rather than going into the chemistry of it. Um, so they're not incentivized to do that. Um, um, yeah, uh, unless they're meeting, uh, you know, a contractual uh, requirement. So, um, yeah, uh, yeah. So in the material science, you've got a lot of control over all those things as long as you put the effort in into learning um, how how to use the chemistry. Um, and then on the the policy side, um, we're actually doing a bit of work with uh, New South Wales government. Um, uh, 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 with the MECLA program, which is the Materials Embodied uh, Carbon Leaders Alliance, uh, which is doing uh, a lot of work uh, engaging with industry. It's an industry-led program uh, where uh, I think it's over 200 um, industry players are collaborating to exchange knowledge in this space, not just for concrete replacement, uh, uh, you know, Portland cement replacement, but also for uh, you know aluminium, timber, um, you know, other alternative uh, materials, steel, um, all to uh, reduce embodied carbon. And uh, we play a role in that by, you know, uh, sharing what we've learnt and, uh, and trying to collaborate and coordinate uh, amongst other industry leaders for um, the, that sustainable outcome. Great, thanks. I think that was a good description as well for everyone just to fundamentals, but also taking into the future and the next steps. Um, so I think Andre, I had another question about just similar practice um, in general and other material experiments with any other bio-based materials or I suppose non-traditional materials and maybe some of the research that you're doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is probably the most uh, novel material experiments that we've sort of undertaken. Uh, but we are, as of this year, uh, received a grant from the Alistair Swain Foundation to uh, do a research study trip uh, looking specifically at a number of things around material adaptive reuse, um, reuse of materials, as well as uh, looking at mycelium and uh, 3D printing and also a, another kind of... Uh, pivotal research project for the practice was a proposal for the NGV actually, uh, which we were shortlisted for and that was essentially looking at ways to convert waste into energy. So that was using an anaerobic digester where it would take food waste from the cafe and restaurant and convert that into electricity, which sort of powered the proposal. So we'll be looking, um, uh, we'll be undertaking that research project, looking over those three themes, uh, which will probably take the next year and a, a little while. Uh, so that's certainly going to be the kind of uh, a particular focus this year alongside um, the traditional architecture work, which, um, you know, we like to kind of do both so they can kind of cross over and allow one to infiltrate the other. And so I think, um, yeah, I think we're, we're trying to kind of 
be as specific as we can with some of those things and, and what the uh, implications are or applications are in the, in the sort of built environment so that we can kind of make most effective of use of them. That was great. It sounds really exciting. It's kind of like the dream of <laughs> being an architect to have this research arm. Um, so, Daniel, I just wanted to um, talk a bit about the robotic fabrication. So maybe if you could explain a bit about um, the curved precast formworks. Obviously, like over history, concrete has been used in different countries um, historically to produce different forms that maybe not everyone has seen, especially um, particularly here in some of our buildings, more traditional construction methodology. Um, so I'm just interested to see, like, your, we'll hear about your research um, in terms of building up your sort of unique fabrication system. Um, so maybe just a bit of background. Uh, okay, um, yeah, so uh, ruled surfaces have been around as long as um, we could describe them um, in mathematics, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure they exist in nature. I'm um, not sure that I've seen them other than maybe uh, seashells, I guess they have some hyperbolic uh, geometry in their ripples, or um, I'm just sort of riffing here, so maybe seaweed, um, but um, uh, in the way that they grow and ripple on the edges. Um, uh, so I'm not sure exactly the true origin of the type of geometry, but um, the most notable example is most likely Gaudi um, in, in Barcelona, uh, in Catalonia. Um, he, he used uh, hyperbolic paraboloids to describe the Sagrada Familia and uh, a lesser known uh, cathedral that he had um, half constructed as well, um, which was much more organic in, in form in Catalonia. Uh, uh, but it, it also had these ruled surface uh, details. And the reason why he used ruled surfaces was they could be described using the tools of the time. Um, so you could craft a, a ruled surface with a straight edge by curving it around uh, a bit of clay or plaster um, in order to form that shape. Um, and from that, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it was uh, learnt that, you know, well, could, couldn't we, uh, you know, create a form that, that mimicked that process um, and uh, that research originated uh, with Paul Lowe and, and David Leggett at the University of Melbourne um, to, to try and uh, replicate that, um, uh, that, that system um, in a robotic uh, formwork. And uh, yeah, they, they, they wanted to figure out how to do it precisely. Uh, so um, they, um, I knew them through RMIT and uh, they, um, you know, got me involved in the project and uh, I uh, managed to figure out how to uh, create the robotic system in a mathematically precise way in order to you know, take that zero tolerance approach um, to design that system that could be mathematically described and have predictable tolerances um, of the product as an outcome. Um, so we, we managed to uh, achieve I think it was sub three millimeter uh, tolerances on that um, iteration of the machine, and since then we've been able to replicate that that uh, 
that precision. Um, uh, but uh, think about how we uh, mass produce these robotic systems in order to set up a, a factory facility to then uh, become more productive and, and commercially viable. Um, and uh, in order to do that, it's not just the technical aspects, it's the, you know, what is the business case? Um, how do we actually fund this? How do we get a team? Um, and, and how do we motivate that team and, uh, and get projects? Um, and uh, yeah, we've learned a, a hell of a lot along the way um, uh, through that process. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, the, the robotic system itself, um, if you had to describe it um, in, a, in mechatronics terminology, it's a parallel robotic system. Um, so it uses only three actuators to describe a complex ruled surface. Um, all of the other components are sticks. Uh, they just move in unison. Um, so the material cost is very low of the robotic system to create any ruled surface. Um, the, uh, the, the design side of it up front is very complex um, in order to solve all of those restraints uh, to make all of these sticks move properly. Um, uh, and uh, you know, now that we've figured that out, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, a, quite a good, nice system to work with because you've only really got three actuators that you have to maintain and uh, you know, it just keeps going. Um, yeah. Thanks for explaining that for everyone. Um, I might open it up to the floor now. So if anyone has a question. Yes. Sorry. What are the limitations on the scale of panels that you can print? Um, and anything that's physically possible. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're working on uh, some uh, yeah, projects that would require about a 10 by 2 meter panel size. Um, so we're um, already thinking about how we build those types of machines. Um, so uh, the limit is really just transport, like how you actually move it there. Otherwise, we have to move the machine there and then build bigger things. Um, uh, so uh, there's, there's really no limitation in size um, in the way that we've designed the robotic system. It's uh, a system that can be added to in terms of number of rulings along its length uh, for infinite uh, if you wanted to, um, uh, but in, in length um, along the ruling there's a structural stiffness that's required for the ruling so you can't go infinite, but uh, you know, you can we can play with physics a little bit, but uh, you know, uh, a practical limit is probably about two meters uh, or, or three um, in the factory, and then um, and then it, it gets a bit uh, challenging structurally. Uh, currently, we are producing uh, panels of about uh, 900 by 900 and 900 by 1800. Um, that's the sizes of machines we currently have, um, and uh, where we're going. In the next 12 months, we think um, will be to produce these machines that are, uh, you know, on the order of about 10 by 2.
Thanks very much. Um, uh, Daniel, I'm, very, I'm Jeff Robinson and um, co-chair one of the Meckler committees, so good out, shout out for Meckler. Um, I, I'm really fascinated by um, the work that you're doing um, because I think if I look around at the moment, we have to move so quickly in terms of embodied carbon and yet it's such a challenge in the industry because of all of the endemic scale things. So what I'm really interested in is kind of two aspects of your business. I kind of got the um, robotics and what you're doing to create all of that and presuming a lot of that is what happens in your factory and I'd love to go and visit it. But I'm also really interested in that scaling up of producing low carbon concrete because whether you are making out of robotic panels or you're making static panels. If you can get that right, you can really, really, really bring down your carbon emissions. So I suppose my question is around the expertise of your company around that material science. I mean, do you make the concrete, forgive me, I'm a mechanical engineer, so my structural colleagues would know a lot more, but um, do you actually make the concrete in your factory or is it a if you like, uh, a mix that you put together that's made in a batching plan to your exacting standards? Uh, no, so we, we make everything um, ourselves. So uh, we're actually um, in the process of designing our own batching plant um, within our factory. So uh, at the moment, you know, it's a couple of buckets and a scale, uh, you know, uh, but um, uh, we're starting to set up sort of vertically stacked um, hoppers and, and uh, mixing stations and things in design concept. Um, and, you know, uh, we'll see in a, a few months we'll, we'll be able to set up those types of systems. Uh, the idea behind that is we want to control the chemistry. We, we want to learn as much as we can. And you learn so much when you're mixing it. It's like cooking in the kitchen. Um, you need all the ingredients there to be able to mix and match. Um, and then make different recipes um, and, uh, you know, do that. We're in a position where we can, uh, you know, tap into the knowledge at Swinburne University, Melbourne University, and, and then um, have use of their facilities um, and then uh, distribute that knowledge. Um, you know, we're, we're not shy of, of doing that, um, of distributing what we learn from those mixed designs um, because we exist to accelerate that transition to low carbon uh, construction um, and the robotics is what makes it valuable for us. So uh, the, the mixed designs and the knowledge that we uh, generate um, through that process then feed into how we fabricate uh, because we're able to tune you know, how long things set for, how it could deform on our robotic system if we needed it to um, and, and so forth. So, um, yeah, we, we do it everything in-house. And then um, when, when we try and scale that production, um, the first step is to set up our own batching facility. Um, but then the next step is, well, how do we then educate, you know, the borals and the, the uh, Cement Australias or the, you know, the, those um, bulk producers um, with those ingredients uh, and the recipes uh, that, that we create within our own sort of lab. Um, or it's a commercially thing, it's a commercial thing, but it is a lab. Um, and, uh, you know, how do we translate that knowledge so uh, that they can use it? And the, I think the trick with geopolymers is 
that you you need to uh, think about how how you can create a ready mix. Um, so the alkali activator, you know, it needs to be in powder form. It needs to be within the uh, active ingredients already in the fly ash or slag composite. Um, and then you just add water. Um, you just need to get the chemistry right uh, and um, and then set up the supply chains, etc. It's a, it's a logistical challenge as well, but um, the, these are the steps that, that need to be taken. Uh, yeah, definitely. Same price or less because um, uh, fly ash and slag doesn't need to go through that chemical process that requires energy and labor. It's sitting there. Um, we just need to use it. Uh, yeah, uh, and there's there's other sources of it overseas that they're trying to get rid of it. Um, so you just need to pay for the ship, um, and and that's it. I think that's a good point on in general about the cost of reusing materials that are the people pay to get rid of, <laughs> and actually repurposing them. And so it's less labour, less. Um, energy intensive, less carbon intensive, less water intensive, and less money. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're solving a problem for them, especially if they need, if the storage of the material requires membraning and protection from uh, groundwater, for instance, with which flash is, is a big issue um, for leaching into groundwater. Um, you know, it's a legal requirement to membrane that in the US, but it's not a legal requirement here. Um, uh, but it, it is a cost to that, uh, you know, whoever is dumping it. Um, so if we can just take it straight off their hands, you know, it solves their problem too. Yeah. Next question. I have a question about... It's not the mycelium. I have a question about the durability. So you mentioned that um, it could be used for insulation. And uh, uh, I could see that see that with the case it made up into, into standard panels stuck between stud work, for example, in a domestic context. What uh, would be the, the durable life or the working life of that that mycelium? And how would that compare, for example, see the large piece you got over to your left? If you were to stick that out in the paddock, just here, fence it in, and how long would that last? Yeah, so I think it's all dependent on the kind of conditions of its environment. I think as an insulation material, so between two cladding systems, uh, internal and external, that will last for an, a really long time. So that would have a... I mean, you can seal it as well to kind of protect it for a longer length of time. Uh, so that, that can certainly work in that instance and, and wouldn't, like, break down in the same way. Once exposed to the kind of uh, external conditions, so the, the rain and the heat, it will slowly break down over time. So I, we did, so for the, our uh, insulation proposal, it, it, the calculations that were done, it seemed to be it would last about seven years before it had kind of fully disintegrated mostly to the ground. I think it only had to be up for about one year. So yeah, it would live beyond that life. Um, but you know that's what really drew us to the idea initially was that it had it was going to slowly over time degrade and that that was something that we could accept as part of um, the architecture of it. So I think if we took this little guy uh, and threw him out there, I think that would 
probably last a little less long, but I think, you know, that's the kind of maybe a couple of years at a, at a guess uh, before it's fully um, gone back to the ground. I think, but I think that's the kind of um, benefit of a material such as this is that you can just throw it on the garden or put it in the compost once you're done. And I think particularly its application for packaging and anything where we're kind of using single-use items to be able to replace that with something that can be kind of returned to the soil is obviously of great benefit. So I think, you know, definitely that depending on the context and the kind of application of the material uh, is definitely going to affect its, its sort of longevity. But, um, yeah, I think that the kind of idea that it is in a state of decay or, or ruin is also kind of conceptually interesting one, at least for us. For sure. And I guess that also points to your use of the like the design and the application of it for that pavilion context in terms of an external application. Any more questions from the floor? A question on the fungi. What's the timeline to produce a, um, a panel to grow and dry it? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's one of the kind of benefits, again, is just how quick it kind of can happen. So, in terms of... Uh, if it was, say, a panel, a typical 24 by 1200 panel sheet, uh, you could essentially, once you had, uh, uh, once you sterilise the substrate and put that into the initial inoculation, uh, you can take a fungi culture, a mycelium culture, add that to the substrate. Typically, you'll let that kind of um, uh, incubate for around seven to ten days, after which, and that would typically be in some sort of bag that increases the humidity, uh, lowers the amount of oxygen, increases the CO2. And then once you've kind of done that, you can break it, you break it up, which is how these were done as well. So after that seven to 10 days, you can break up the material and already the mycelium has started to fuse it together. And then you can place it in a mold, for example. So uh, you can take that broken up substrate, put it into the mold. It's already inoculated with mycelium. Then it goes through another incubation phase, which is typically another seven to 10 days. Uh, and so, you know, hypothetically, after two to three weeks, you'll have a sort of finished panel, um, which is sort of grown. And um, after that two to three week period, that's when you can uh, dry it out, either through an oven uh, or, you know, in the sun. So it's, a, it's a quite a quick process when you think about um, it's coming from a waste material uh, and being grown in that amount of time. Yeah, I think that was a really good question as well, just in terms of um, commercial like applications and timing and production at scale as well. Um, might go back to a few of my questions <laughs> before we run out of time. Um, so, Daniel, maybe back to you. Um, I'm interested, obviously, you're using um, waste material in the production of your material, but have you... Uh, researched the, I suppose, lifespan of your finished material and come up with solutions to the waste problem of your what your material will inevitably be in the future at the hands of um, demoli like demolition and um, new user groups and I suppose the longevity of the material and the destruction. Yeah, um, absolutely. So... Uh, again, um, we don't 
just focus on one thing, we focus on two things again. Uh, so one is the longevity of the material, but also, you know, what do you do at the end of its life? Um, and you need to design for that. So, um, you know, the, the longevity of the material itself, we don't use any uh, steel reinforcement where we can avoid it. Um, and uh, we use uh, fibers uh, that reinforce the, uh, the, the concrete um, that, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the, its life, you can just break it apart and use it as an aggregate um, for um, other roads or pavements, etc., um, as a replacement for those, those aggregates. Um, uh, and uh, the, the geopolymer itself is actually uh, more durable than, than standard Portland cement. Um, it, uh, it is more uh, inert to uh, these sort of chemical attacks uh, that, that happen with uh, sulfate and, and uh, chlorine, etc. Um, and uh, you can find examples of uh, flash-infused uh, concretes from the Romans and uh, even uh, uh, if you look at geopolymer.org you can find some information about how the Egyptians built the pyramids um, and uh, you can uh, you, know, uh, you know believe the archaeologists or the engineers I don't know which side you're on <laughs> um, but uh, uh, according to an engineer uh, the um, the way the pyramids were built uh, was cast in place uh, uh, concrete equivalent, um, which was a geopolymer. They used salt and fly ash from palm trees that they burnt down um, and put sand in buckets, mixed it, created a, a cast, did a hit and miss formwork, casted each second brick, and then cast in between them to get your hairline precision. Um, and that's still there. So um, there's, there's no steel reinforcement in that, of course. And that's the same with the Romans. They didn't have uh, the steel reinforcement, so that, that lasts for a long time. Um, so that's one key element to it. Uh, the other really interesting thing, I think, that was in popular news lately is about lime clasts, uh, which are little clumps of lime that the Romans put into the, uh, the uh, concrete matrix uh, in order to allow the lime to leach um, into the, or, or dissolve into the surrounding cracks uh, within the material, and it was able to self-heal itself. Um, and uh, if, if there's no steel reinforcement in that concrete, uh, that reaction of the lime, uh, you know, like the formation of a cave, can, can fill those cracks and voids, um, you know, the the challenge is though it's a slow process it's much slower than steel corrodes so um, you can't really try it in, in the modern uh, steel reinforcement sense <laughs> uh, the, the steel will corrode quicker unfortunately but um, the, the yeah the the geopolymer um, w without steel reinforcement um, can can last uh, you know five thousand years um, uh, with steel reinforcement um, you know, uh, it, it's equivalent or, or better than standard Portland cement, uh, depending on the mix design. Uh, I, and then, uh, sorry, the, the other aspects, um, uh, design for disassembly. Uh, so um, our um, latest 
Oh, actually, uh, we did it on the previous project too, where um, the, the attachment method uh, used, um, it, it doesn't uh, rely on um, casting or wet jointing um, or, or um, permanent fixings. Um, uh, they're, they're based on bolted connections um, or pins in hooks uh, that can be disassembled um, at, at the end of its life. Um, so you could replace a panel uh, quite readily if you needed to, or you could disassemble the structure, use the panels for something else, or, um, or you know, crush them down for aggregate. Um, the new system that we created, uh, the panels don't actually have any cast-in details. So we deleted all the steel, um, and now you can just extract a panel, and it's literally just the fibers and the concrete matrix, uh, which is a bit of sand and the waste byproducts. That can just be broken down if needed. Great, thank you. Um, you got a question? Yeah. Thanks. How you make a panel that seems to be quite thin that's two metres by, did you say, 1900 without any steel reinforcing or any reinforcing? So has uh, it got some sort of fibre mesh in the middle of it? Uh, that, that panel might need a little bit of something else. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking that's yeah. kind of like magic, it's yeah? <laughs> it's that thin and it's just... Um, you could do it under certain load scenarios, um, but... Um, yeah, oh, probably could. But, um, uh, yeah, it's possible to um, uh, use, like, a post-tensioning system um, that uh, isn't steel. Uh, so we could use carbon fibre reinforcement or basalt rope um, in conjunction with the fibres. Um, there are also rigid forms of reinforcement that are not steel. Um, uh, you know, basalt fibre, rigid uh, epoxied um, reinforcement and that sort of thing, but they, they don't meet standard codes yet. Um, and it's another step that we haven't taken just now. Uh, and it's a, a space that we're moving into with those, those large scale panels. Um, so there will be a transition period for us um, in order to take on those, those larger jobs where we're using some standard reinforcement details for those scale panels. Um, but uh, wherever we can, we'll be reducing that steel, and then eventually we'll, we'll end up with, with something that, that, that doesn't rely on that reinforcement. Okay, um, I've got a last question for Andre. Um, so, obviously, you mentioned for the Tallinn um, installation, you tried to use this produce this prototype um, and presumably others as well. Did you have any larger prototypes and what did you learn through the um, experimentation process to reinform your design and I suppose challenge some of the assumptions you made when you were attempting a one-to-one -one scale? Um, yeah, I think firstly, thanks everyone for hanging in there in the freezing cold Melbourne weather because uh, I'm struggling. Um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, we haven't got to, obviously, the scale of the proposal. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it was from 2021. Uh, it was COVID issues, so we ended up needing to, you know, resign the commission. So it's sort of on hold indefinitely at the moment. Um, but, you know, the plan is to 
do it in the future at that scale. But certainly um, from other, some of the other larger scale tests that we've done, I think it's and it's similar kind of issues that you're kind of facing with these material experimentations is when you're kind of upscaling and it's all the infrastructure around it. Um, so, you know, as I mentioned, the kind of conditions that you need uh, that are very particular, avoiding contamination, so sterilization. So particularly when you start to move up to a larger operation and building scale, uh, particularly if you're using waste products like sawdust or agricultural bi biomass, uh, it's having the system in place and the infrastructure there to properly sterilize at those quantities and then, you know, having a facility that's, you know, lab-like because what, what it needs to often be um, with these types of uh, materials that you've got the capacity there to, to kind of upscale that as well. So, you know, even just with these, it was the full room being kind of sterilised, gloves, uh, masks, uh, and trying to avoid any um, mishaps, but a kind of always inevitable with a kind of organic um, organism such as mycelium, but, you know, wherever it can be avoided, then, um, uh, you know, it's, it's best to do so. But I think, uh, you know, once you have all of that in place, it can be a super quick and effective way to produce that. And I think certainly, um, you know, the uh, ecovative that I mentioned are certainly, you know, showcasing that uh, in New York and being able to kind of deliver it at a larger scale, certainly not on the kind of um, construction industry scale yet, but uh, at least in the terms of sort of packaging and those sort of scale of items. Yeah, it's great to see the overlap with other industries as well and um, share the learnings. So one just final question to wrap up for both of you is what is your material tip for the future for the audience? Could be another material, could be the materials you've been working with, what's something exciting and boundary pushing that you're looking forward to in the short to midterm? Uh, yeah, I would love to say something other than uh, fungi, but I'm not sure I'm going to do that. No, I think my head's definitely in uh, the fungi at the moment. But I think, uh, I mean, certainly something that I mentioned before was just, I guess, about that. I mean, I think there's definitely a kind of, people are far more conscious of it, and certainly as an industry, where we kind of need to prioritise uh, existing materials um, and in, an embedded energy that already exists within materials. So obviously, uh, you know, trying not to demolish, uh, reusing where you can. I mean, that's certainly, I think, a kind of not so fancy um, material that we can kind of just appreciate and put greater value on the existing materials that we do have uh, and finding a use for those, um, you know, as a kind of first priority would be. Great. Thanks. Daniel? Um, I'm looking forward to uh, going beyond geopolymers towards uh, zero carbon emitting concrete or positively absorbing carbon uh, concrete. Um, uh, doesn't have to be concrete. It can be something else like trees, uh, timber that already do that. But um, uh, over the lifespan that concrete can exist for um, as a building, um, if it lasts for a thousand years and absorbs, uh, you know, enough CO2 in its own structure, like a tree, uh, then uh, that's, you know, that's the ideal scenario, right? It can last longer than timber, um, but it can still absorb CO2 over the entire lifespan of that construction. Um, and that technology does exist um, in, um, 
you know, self-healing style, uh, you know, uh, bio, uh, uh, you know, uh, based, uh, uh, organisms that, that, uh, can be mixed in with the, the material in order to achieve that. It's a very early science, um, and, uh, I think there are some demonstrations of it already. Um, and yeah, that's, uh, that's where we want to get to, um, so after we've figured out the geopolymer one, uh, we'll move over to maybe some more metacolon clay-based um, lower carbon alternatives, and then into uh, this, these bio-style uh, concretes that actually absorb CO2. Awesome. Thanks. Just want to say a massive thank you to both our panellists for tonight. Really appreciate you coming out and showing us your experiments in person, which has been super valuable. Um, and thank you so much for the generous descriptions of your work as well. And it's really exciting to see what you're both working on next. Um, so please follow these guys and, and see what they've been working on um, to date. Take up the opportunity to visit the factory and follow Simulara as well. Um, massive thanks to M Pavilion and the organisers um, and production team from them for helping um, get this all happening and on the night as well. Um, and also a big thank you to all the audience tonight. Thanks for staying with us uh, and coming out. It's freezing, but um, hope you have a good rest of your night and enjoy the rest of the M Pavilion program as well. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>